0: Magic Without Fears, hermetic podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. And we return to our study of magic, white and black, with the ever-interesting Franz Hartman, M.D., founder of the O.T.O., in fact, and an interesting fellow of the 19th century. Chapter 3, Form. The universe is a thought of God, Paracelsus. According to Plato, the primordial essence is an emanation of the demiurgic mind, which contains from eternity the idea of the natural world within itself, and which idea he produces out of himself by the power of his will. This doctrine seems to be almost as old as the existence of reasoning man on this globe. It contains essentially the same truth which has been taught by the ancient Rishis, and has been expressed, although perhaps in other terms, by the deepest thinkers of all ages, apparently, from the first planetary spirit that made his appearance on this earth down to the modern philosophers who teach that the world is a product of ideation and will. Note Schopenhauer, die Welt als Wille und Vorstellung. Although the latter seem to forget that will and ideation cannot exist independently of something that wills and thinks, but are functions of some unknown principle or cause, this one unknown cause comes into knowable existence when the unmanifested absolute manifesting itself assumes a threefold aspect Upon this truth is based the doctrine of the Trinity, which we find represented in the most ancient religious systems of the East, as well as in Christian symbolism, and without which even so-called rationalistic science becomes irrational. Because if the materialist, correctly, states that there can be no matter without motion, and no motion without matter, he must, to remain logical, add that the existence of matter and the activity of motion must have some cause. He may not know that cause, but the cause nevertheless is there, even if we know nothing at all about it, except that it is. The trinity of rational science is therefore action, reaction, and causation, or in other words, matter, motion, and cause, potency. The great Christian mystic Jakob Böhme describes the great first cause as a trinity of will, thought, and action. His doctrine corresponds to that which is taught in the East regarding the three emanations of Brahm, and of which that German shoemaker could at that time have hardly known a thing, if he had not been an Illuminate. He says in his book on the Three Principles that by the activity of the will-fire at the center, the eternal consciousness of the latter was reflected in space as in a mirror, and from this activity light and life were born. He then describes how by the action radiating from the incomprehensible center, radiating into the element of matter, and the subsequent reaction from the periphery toward the center, rotation, mixture of the essential substances and complexedness were caused, and how at least the ether, the world of forms, came into existence, and grew into material density. Thus the will of the Father, love, sent out the Son, life, and through that action the power of the Father in the Son, light, or the Holy Ghost, became manifest and its manifestation is the visible and invisible universe in one, with all its suns, stars, planets, their forms and inhabitants, with all the angels and demons, divas, elementals, men and animals, or in other words, with all the energies and powers and forms of the visible and invisible side of nature. This trinity manifests itself on three different planes, or modes of action, that have been termed matter, soul, and spirit, or according to the symbolism of ancient occult science, earth, water, fire. The one becomes manifest in the three, but the three is a whole and does not consist of three parts, of which one comes into succession after another. It springs into existence at once. Reaction cannot exist without action, and both are due to a coexisting cause. The father does not become a father before the arrival of the Son. And that which produces the Son is the power resting in the Father, His will manifesting itself as the Spirit pervading all nature. There is no motion without matter or without cause, no cause without an effect and without something upon which an effect is produced. There can be no extension, duration, or space without matter or motion, and no form without space. Absolute space is invisible, and we cannot conceive of its form. We cannot imagine it to be without any limits, nor can we conceive of any limits to it with no space beyond it. Relative space is limited and exists as a form. There can be no empty space because space means extension, and we cannot conceive of nothing, nor can nothing have an extension. Forms are, so to say, Space, which has been rendered objective, crystallized into some shape which may or may not be perceptible to our senses, and no form can exist but in space. These forms come into existence by the action of the three elements, fire, water, and earth, neither one of which exists without the other two, because they are not three different things per se but only three aspects of the Eternal One. Spirit, or fire, is an immaterial, formless, and universal element. It is the matrix in which everything was contained before it was thrown into objectivity by the awakening of its will. It is the will itself, the source of all power, and the substance of which all is made. God is a fire, to which none can approach, Except through the sun. The dark fire cannot be known to man except through the light which emanates from it. Life would never be known unless it becomes manifest, and to become manifest, a form is required. No magical process has ever been accomplished without the magic fire, and to learn to know the true nature of that fire is the great desideratum of every occultist. Soul or water or light, is a semi-material element. It is the organizing element of corporeal forms. The soul of microcosmic man corresponds to the soul of the macrocosm. It is the playground of elemental forces of nature existing in the astral plane. It penetrates and surrounds the planets, as it surrounds and penetrates the bodies of men and animals, and all other bodies and forms, and all material forms are, so to say, only materialized souls that will perish after the light has been extracted from them. The light is the redeemer from darkness on every plane of existence. It comes from the fire, but it is not itself the fire. It is a principle in itself, and its attributes are different from those of the fire. It is itself the life of everything. Matter, or earth, is an invisible material element pervading all space. Condensed by the organizing power of the soul, it clothes the forms of the latter and renders them visible on the physical plane. But not all forms are visible to the physical sense of sight. The material forms which we see are not the only forms in existence. The invisible world, hidden in the visible one, could be discovered by man if he were able to draw the veil from matter, because within the material form resides the invisible element, of which the visible form is only the external expression. From the interaction of the three primordial elements, spirit, soul, and matter, four compound principles become manifest, and these four added to the three former represent seven principles. This sevenfold division in the constitution of the macrocosmos and microcosmos was known to the ancient sages of the East as well as to Western adepts such as Paracelsus and others, and has recently been brought prominently to the notice of the public by the teachings of the Eastern adepts. As a matter of course, however, all such divisions are arbitrary, for a man is an undivided whole and we may divide his constitution in as many parts as we please for the purpose of facilitating this study. We may look upon him as a unity, or in a dual aspect as a manifestation of spirit, acting in matter, or as a trinity of spirit, body, and soul, or in his fourfold aspect as a representation of four states of consciousness. As a full accord of five harmonious powers, as a compound of four elements joined to the fifth, the quintessence of all things, as a revelation of six visible powers emanating from a seventh but invisible center, etc. This sevenfold classification recommends itself on account of its simplicity and because it can be easily seen to harmonize with the customary threefold classification. Jakob Burma teaches that of these seven principles or natural qualities, the first and the seventh are one, and refer to the Father. The second and sixth, as one, refer to the Son, and likewise the third and fifth to the Holy Spirit. It has been stated as follows. 1. A. The element of matter, Akasha, represented by Earth. 2. b. A combination of matter and soul, known as the astral body, a mixture of earth and water, b. the soul, known as the perisprit, or the animal principle in man represented by water, a.b.c. the essence of life, a combination of matter, soul, and spirit, earth, water, and fire, a.c. the mind, a combination of matter and spirit, or earth and fire, the principle of intellectuality. B.C. The spiritual soul, a combination of soul and pure spirit, or water and fire, the principle of spiritual intelligence. C. Pure spirit, or fire, the incomprehensible first great cause. Note the Sanskrit term for the seven principles are 1. Pakriti, 2. Lingasariram, 3. Kamarupa, 4. Jiva five Manas six Buddhi seven Atma see also five years of Theosophy The division adopted by Paracelsus and in esoteric Buddhism is identical with the above, with the exception that the jiva or vitality is counted as the second and the astral body as the third principle, as follows one the physical body stula Sariram 2. Vitality, Mumia, 3. Astral body, Sidereal body, 4. Animal soul, 5. Intellectual soul, 6. Spiritual soul, 7. Spirit. It is said that this division was also known to the ancient Jews, and that the Hebrew alphabet consisting of 22 letters was made with reference to it, because the 3 in 7 states produces 12 symbols and three plus seven plus twelve is twenty-two. Jacob Burma describes the action of these seven principles in his own way. He says, quote, when the light was born at the center, the spiritual sun, and reacted upon the central fire, a terrible battle ensued, causing an igneous eruption, and from the sun proceeded a flash of storm and fire, an element called Mars. Taken captive by the light, it assumed a place and continues to agitate all nature. The light, having been enchained by Mars, proceeded further in the rigidity of the element of matter, Saturn, and became corporeal in forms. Above the element called Jupiter, in the astringent anguish of the whole body of this solar system, the sun was not powerful enough to mitigate the horror and there arose Saturn, the element opposite to meekness, producing rigidity. The Sun is the heart of nature, the center of life. Saturn represents corporeal nature or matter. Without the action of the life coming from the Sun upon matter, there would be no production of forms. Venus is the daughter of the Sun. She rises out of the water of the universe, penetrates the hard element of matter and enkindles love. Mercury, like the others, an invisible element, represents the principle of sound, or the word, by whose activity the sleeping germs of everything are awakened to life. Mercury is continually impregnated by the substance of the sun. In it is found the knowledge of that which existed before the light had penetrated into the solar center. The moon was produced directly from the sun at the time of his becoming material. The moon is the spouse of the sun. She is the Eve who was made out of a part of Adam while the latter was asleep. In this classification the sun represents wisdom, the moon, imagination, mercury, the mind, substance, Venus, the Astral Body, Mars, the Principle of Life, Jupiter, the Element of Power, Saturn, Primordial Matter. But the significations of these planets differ according to the aspects we take of them. All forms are the expression of either one or more of these elementary principles, and exist as long as their respective principles are active in them. They are not necessarily visible, because their visibility depends on their power to reflect light. Invisible gases may be solidified by pressure and cold and rendered visible and tangible, but the most solid substances may be made invisible and intangible by the application of heat. The products of cosmic thought are not all sufficiently materialized to be visible to the physical eye and in reality we see only a very small part of their sum. No one doubts that there is an immense amount of invisible matter in the universe, whether cometary or otherwise, and every improvement in the manufacture of optic instruments brings new realms of forms and life to our perception. Each transformation of activity gives rise to changes of forms and may bring new forms into existence. Solid ice may be transformed into invisible vapor, and condensed again, into a tangible form. The more matter expands, and the more its motion is made active, the more will it escape the perception of the physical senses, but its expansion does not necessarily render it less powerful to act. Steam is more powerful than water, and overheated to a certain degree, it evolves into electricity, and may become very destructive. The more the element of matter is condensed, the more inert does it appear, and the more it expands, the farther will its sphere of activity reach. All bodies have their invisible spheres. Their visible spheres are limited by the periphery of their visible forms. Their invisible spheres extend farther into space. Their spheres cannot be always detected by physical instruments, but they nevertheless exist, and under certain conditions their existence can be proved to the senses. The sphere of an odoriferous body can be perceived by the organ of smell, the sphere of a magnet by the approach of iron, the sphere of a man or an animal by that most delicate of all instruments, the abnormally sensitive brain. These spheres are the magnetic, coloric, odic, or luminous auras and emanations belonging to every object in space. Such an emanation may sometimes be seen as the aurora borealis in the polar regions of our planet, or as the photosphere of the sun during an eclipse. The glory around the head of a saint is no poetical fiction, no more than the sphere of light radiating from a precious stone. As each sun has its system of planets revolving around it, So each body is surrounded by smaller centers of energy, evolving from the common center, and partaking of the attributes of that center. Copper, carbon, and arsenic, for instance, send out auras of red. Lead and sulfur emit blue colors, gold, silver, and antimony green, and iron emits all the colors of the rainbow. Plants, animals, and men emit similar colors according to their characteristics, Persons of a high and spiritual character have beautiful auras of white and blue, gold and green, in various tints, while low natures emit principally dark red emanations, which in brutal and vulgar or villainous persons darken almost to black. And the collective auras of bodies of men or plants or animals, of cities and countries, correspond to their predominant characteristics, so that a person, whose sense of perception is sufficiently developed, may see the state of the intellectual and moral development of a place or a country by observing the sphere of its emanations. These spheres expand from the center, and their periphery grows in proportion to the intensity of the energy acting within the center. Who can measure the extent of the sphere of thought, and the depth of the regions to which it may penetrate? who can determine the distance to which the power of will and love and spiritual perception will act. We know the sphere of a rose by the odor that proceeds from the latter if we have the power to smell. We know the character of the mind of a man if we enter the sphere of his thoughts, provided that our inner senses are sufficiently developed to become conscious of the state of his mind. The quality of psychic emanations depends on the state of activity of the center from which they originate. For each thing and each being is tinctured with that particular principle which exists at the invisible center, and from this center receives the form of its own character or attributes. They are symbols of the states of the soul of each form. They indicate the state of the emotions. Each emotion corresponds to a certain color. Love corresponds to blue, desire to red, benevolence to green, and these colors may induce corresponding emotions in other souls, especially if the emotional element is guided by reason. Blue has a soothing effect and may tranquilize a maniac or subdue a fever. Red excites to passion. A steer may be furious at the sight of a red cloth, and an unreasoning mob become infuriated at the sight of blood. This chemistry of the soul is not any more wonderful than the facts known in physical chemistry, and these processes take place according to the same law, which causes chloride of silver to turn from white into black if exposed to blue or white light, while ruby red or yellow light leaves it unchanged. The thoughts of the universal mind expressed in matter on any plane comprise all the forms of the mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms on earth, including the bodies and souls of all beings. Their physical forms are the expressions of three principles, and each material form contains within itself its ethereal counterpart, which may, under certain conditions, separate itself from the more material part, or be extracted therefrom by the hands of an adept. These astral parts may be corporified and be rendered visible. Actually, all bodies, even the most solid rocks, are nothing else but corporified astral appearances, whose innermost substance is the fire, whose light is their life. Every individual being is a flame in creation, whose light differs from others according to its own particular attributes. Astral forms continue to exist for a while after the visible bodies to which they belong have had their fire extinguished. The astral corpses of the dead may be seen by the clairvoyant hovering over the graves, bearing the resemblance of the once living man. They may be artificially infused with life, and with a borrowed consciousness, and made use of in the practices of necromancy and black magic." or be attracted to the spiritual seances to represent the spirits of the dead. There are persons in whom this principle, either in consequence of constitutional peculiarities or in consequence of disease, is not very firmly united with the physical body, and may become separated from it for a short period. Note, this intimate relation of the astral form and the physical body is often illustrated at so-called exposures of spiritual mediums. If a materialized form is soiled by ink or soot, the coloring matter will afterwards be found on the corresponding part of the medium's body, because when the astral form re-enters that body, it will leave the soiling matter on the corresponding parts of the latter. Such persons are suitable mediums for so-called spirit materializations, Their ethereal counterparts may appear separated from their bodies and assume the visible form of some person either living or dead. It receives its new mask by the unconscious or conscious thoughts of the persons present, by the reflections thrown out from their memories and minds. Or it may be made to represent other characters by influences invisible to the physical eye. As the brain is the central organ for the circulation of nerve fluid, And as the heart is the organ for the circulation of the blood, so the spleen is the organ from which the astral elements draw their vitality, and in certain diseases, where the action of the spleen is impeded, this double of a person may involuntarily separate itself from the body. It is nothing very unusual that a sick person feels as if he were not himself, or as if another person was lying in the same bed with him, and that he himself were that other. Such cases of doppelgangers, wraiths, apparitions, ghosts, etc., caused by the separation of the lingasariram from the physical form, can be found in many works treating of mystic phenomena occurring in nature. Usually these astral forms are without consciousness and without any life of their own, but they may be made to be the seat of life and consciousness by withdrawing the life from the material form and concentrating it into the astral body. A person who has succeeded in doing this may step out of his physical form and live independent of the latter, and an adept may even entirely remain outside his physical body and continue to live in his ethereal and invisible form. Note the stories of the fakers who have been buried alive for months on end and resurrected afterwards might Here be a useful illustration. They are too well known to need repetition in this place. Moreover, phenomena, however well attested they may be, can never stand in the place of knowledge. They furnish no explanation of the mysterious laws of nature. The occurrence of phenomena proves nothing but that they occur. Real knowledge is never attained by the observation of external phenomena. It can only be attained by the knowledge of the self. The forms, in the realm of the soul, in which the fourth principle is the essential element, are still more ethereal and more independent of a definite form. This will not seem incomprehensible if we remember that they, too, are forms of thought, and that a thought, or an idea, may take a definite shape, or may remain shapeless and undefined. If we, for instance, hear the word animal, we conceive of a living being of some shape or other, but give our conception no definite form, but if the animal is described as one with whose form we are acquainted, the picture of that form will come to the consciousness of the mind. Concentration of thought gives shape to ideas and condenses the formless into forms. Purely spiritual or abstract ideas such as love, faith, hope, charity, etc., have no shapes and cannot be conceived as forms. They can at best be symbolized by forms which are made to guide our thoughts towards the formless ideas whose attributes they are intended to bring before our imagination. Among the ancients it was customary to make such personifications of impersonal powers and to describe their functions in symbols and allegories. The first Christians adopted that system. Modern religionism believes those allegories to represent dead persons and peoples, and knows nothing about the living principles which they represent. As there are three elements represented in the three kingdoms of the physical plane, so there are three kingdoms of elementals existing on the astral plane, corresponding to the elements of fire, water, and earth. Individual forms on that plane may often make their presence felt to men or animals, but under ordinary circumstances they cannot be seen. They may, however, be seen by the clairvoyant, and, under certain conditions, even assume visible and tangible shapes. Their bodies are of an elastic semi-material essence, ethereal enough so as not to be detected by physical sight, and they may change their forms according to certain laws. Bulwer-Lytton says, Life is one all-pervading principle, and even the thing that seems to die and putrefy, but engenders new life and changes to new forms of matter. Reasoning then by analogy, if not a leaf, if not a drop of water, but is no less than yonder star, a habitable and breathing world, common sense would suffice to teach that the circumfluent infinite, which you call space, the boundless impalpable, which divides the earth from the moon and the stars, is filled also with its correspondent and appropriate life. And further on, he says, in the drop of water you see animalcule vary. How vast and terrible are some of these monster mites, as compared with others, equally so with the inhabitants of the atmosphere, some of surpassing wisdom, some of horrible malignity some hostile as fiends to man, others gentle as messengers between earth and heaven. Bulwer-Lytton, Zanoni Our skeptical age is accustomed to admire in such descriptions the fancy of the writer, never suspecting that they were intended to convey a truth. But there are many witnesses to testify, if it were necessary, that such invisible, but substantial and variously shaped beings exist, and that they, by the educated will of man, can be made conscious, intelligent, visible, and even useful to man. This assertion is supported by the testimony found in the writings of Rosicrucians, Kabbalists, Alchemists, and Adepts, as well as in the ancient books of Wisdom of the East, and in the Bible of the Christians. Such existences are, however, not necessarily personal beings, They may be impersonal forces, acquiring form and life and consciousness by their contact with man. The gnomes and sylphs, the undines and salamanders, do not entirely belong to the realm of fable, although they may be something very different of what the ignorant believe them to be. How insignificant and little appears individual man in the infinity of the universe, and yet there is only a comparatively insignificant part of the universe, revealed to him by the senses. Could he see the worlds within worlds above, beneath, and everywhere, swarming with beings whose existences he does not suspect, while they, perhaps, know nothing of his existence? He would be overwhelmed with terror and seek for a god to protect him, and yet there are none of these beings higher or as powerful as the spiritual man who has learned to know his powers and in whom his own God has awakened to consciousness and strength. The beings of the spiritual plane are such as have once been men. Their constitution is beyond the comprehension of those that are not their equals, and their ethereal forms in a state of perfection we cannot conceive. Having outgrown the necessity of residing in a form, they enter the state of the formless, approaching evermore the universal mind, from which the power called man emanated at the beginning. We may look upon a personal man as a single note in the great orchestra composing the world, and upon a Diane Cohen as a full accord or a compound of notes in the symphony of the gods. There may be unharmonious compositions of notes in music, and there are evil spiritualities as there is darkness in contradistinction to light because a high grade of intelligence may be used for vile purposes. But the good spirituality cannot be conquered by evil, because it is protected by wisdom, which is essentially good, and of which evil is but the reverse. There are good and evil spiritual beings, and either class may possess a great deal of knowledge and power, but only the good, that is to say kind and benevolent powers, can be considered wise. Because wisdom means a union of knowledge and love from which the highest powers spring. To be wise is to be good and beautiful and true. Evil spiritualities may be very strong, but they cannot overcome the good ones because they lack wisdom, and wisdom is itself the divine will of God. What is a spirit? Nothing else but a thought rendered alive by the will, a ray of light. Receiving its impulse by the fire hidden within. A thought without will is unsubstantial, like an image in a mirror. Made active by the will, it assumes life, substance, and form. We all are spirits as long as we have the will. But when the will leaves a man, his life goes with it, and his body, the shadow, fades away. The realm of the soul is the realm of the emotions, Emotions are not merely the results of physiological processes depending on causes coming from the physical plane, but they belong to a form of life on the astral plane. They often come and go without any apparent cause. The states of the weather or circumstances over which we have no control may cause certain emotions independently of our state of physical health. A person entering a room where everyone is laughing is liable to participate in the common emotion without knowing the cause of the hilarity. A whole crowd may be swayed by the intense emotion of a speaker, although they may not fully understand what he says. One hysterical woman in a hospital ward may create an epidemic of hysteria among the other women, and a whole congregation may become excited by the harangue of an emotional exhorter no matter whether his language is foolish or wise. A sudden accumulation of emotion or energy on the astral plane may kill a person as quickly as a sudden explosion of powder. We hear of persons who were transfixed by terror or paralyzed by fear. In such cases the astral consciousness having become abnormally active at the expense of the consciousness on the physical plane the activity of life on the physical plane may cease, and the affected person may faint, or perhaps die. All forms come into existence according to certain laws. The solar microscope shows how, in a solution of salt, a center of matter is formed, and how to that center its kindred forces are attracted, crystallizing around it, and becoming solid and firm. Each kind of salt produces the peculiar crystals that belong to its class and no other. However, often the process may be repeated. In the vegetable kingdom we see that the seed of one plant will attract to itself those forces which it requires to produce a plant resembling its parent. The seed of an apple tree can produce nothing else but an apple tree, and an acorn can grow into nothing else but an oak. The principal characteristic of an animal will be those that belong to its parents, and the external appearance of a man will correspond, more or less, to that of the race and family in which he was born. As every mathematical point in space may develop into a living and conscious and visible being, after once a certain center of energy, a germ, has been formed, so in the invisible realm of the soul astral forms may come into existence wherever the necessary conditions for their growth exist. In the same manner, as an act of motion on the physical plane may attract the universally diffused matter around a common center, likewise an act of emotion on the astral plane may crystallize around the thought into an invisible but nevertheless substantial entity, which may have an existence of long or short duration, according to the intensity with which the forces composing it are concentrated upon its center. As the forms on the astral plane correspond to the characters of the forces prevailing upon that plane, so the forms on the astral plane are expressions of the characteristics of the prevailing emotions on that plane. They may manifest themselves either in beautiful or in horrible shapes, because every form is only the symbol or the expression Of the character which it represents. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week, or six dollars a month, or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. The forms in the mineral kingdom are expressive of forces acting in straight and angular lines. Those of the vegetable kingdom represent radiating and curved lines. The animal forms are expressions of forces acting on the astral plane, and the inhabitants of the astral plane may resemble visible animal or human forms. In those forms which belong exclusively to the astral plane, the higher spiritual energies are not active. They may have a consciousness of their own, and realize their existence. But under ordinary circumstances they have no more intelligence than animals, and cannot act intelligently and in accordance with reason. They follow their blind attraction, as iron is attracted to a magnet, and wherever they find an excessive amount of emotion evolved by a human being, they are attracted thither as to a common center. And their accumulation increases the activity of that center and increases the size of its sphere. We therefore often see that if one emotion is not controlled in the beginning, it may grow and become uncontrollable. Some people have died of grief and some others of joy. But if these intelligent forms are infused with the principle of intelligence proceeding from man, they become intelligent and act in accordance with the dictates of the master from which they receive their will and intelligence, and who may employ them for good or for evil. Every emotion that arises in man may combine with the astral forces of nature and create a being, which may be perceived by persons possessing abnormal faculties of perception, as an active and living entity. Every sentiment which finds expression in word or action may call into existence a living entity on the astral plane. Some of these forms may be very enduring according to the intensity and duration of the thought that created them, while others are the creations of one moment and vanish in the next. There are numerous cases on record in which some person or other, having committed some crime, is described as having been persecuted for years by some avenging demon, who would appear objectively and disappear again. Such demons may be, and perhaps can be, nothing else but the products of the involuntary action of the imagination of their victims, but they are nevertheless real to the latter. They may be called into existence by memory and remorse, and their images existing in the mind may become objective by fear, because fear is a repulsive function. It instinctively repulses the object of which a man is afraid, and by repelling the image from the center towards the periphery of the mind, that image may be rendered objective. Instances are known in which persons have been driven to suicide, hoping thereby to escape these persecuting demons. Such demons are said to have in some cases taken even a tangible form, But whether tangible or intangible, the substance of which they are formed is merely a projection of substance of the person to whom they thus appear. They are, so to say, that person himself. And if the latter could injure or kill such a ghost, he would merely thereby injure or kill his own body. Note. In the Lives of the Saints And in the history of witchcraft we can find often instances of the appearances of doubles in visible and even tangible forms. Such phenomena may take place in mediumistic persons, if by contrary emotions the will becomes divided, acting in two different directions and projecting thereby two forms. For it is the spiritual will of man that creates subjective forms, consciously or unconsciously, and under certain conditions they may become objective and visible. As an illustration of this law, we may cite from the Acta Sanctorum, an episode in the life of St. Dominic. He was once called to the bedside of a sick person, who told him that Christ had appeared to him. The saint answered that this was impossible, and that the apparition had been produced by the devil, because only holy persons could have an apparition of Christ. As he said so, a doubt as to whether the apparition seen may not have been a true one after all entered his mind, and immediately a division of consciousness was produced, which caused the double of Dominic to appear at the other side of the patient's bed. The two Dominics were seen by the patient, and heard to dispute with each other. And while one Dominic asserted that apparition had been the work of the devil, the other one maintained that it was the true Christ, The two Dominics were so identical that the patient did not know which of them was the true saint, and which one his image, and he could not make up his mind what to believe. Until, at last, the saint called upon God to assist him. That is to say, he concentrated his willpower again within himself, his consciousness became again a unity, and the double disappeared from view. Absurd as such stories may appear to our enlightened age. Their absurdity ceases when the occult laws of nature and the fact of the possibility of a double consciousness are understood. A.P. Sinnott, The Occult World. An adept, in a letter to Mr. Sinnott, says, every thought of man upon being evolved passes into another world and becomes an active entity by associating itself, coalescing, we might term it, with an elemental, that is to say, with one of the semi-intelligent forces of the kingdom. It survives as an active intelligence, a creature of the mind's begetting, for a longer or shorter period, proportionate with the original intensity of the cerebral action which generated it. Thus a good thought is perpetuated as an active beneficent power, an evil one as a maleficent demon. And so man is continually peopling his current in space with the offspring of his fancies, desires, impulses, and passions, a current which reacts upon any sensitive or nervous organization which comes in contact with it in proportion to its dynamic intensity. The adept evolves these shapes consciously. Other men throw them off unconsciously. This testimony is corroborated by one coming from another source, and proving that to create subjective forms it is not necessary to give a distinct shape to our thoughts by the power of imagination, but that each state of feeling or sentiment may find expression in subjective forms, whether or not we may be conscious of their existence. A form is a state of mind, and a sentiment is a state of mind. A sentiment expressed will be represented by a corresponding form. Mr. Whitworth, a clairvoyant describes how in his youth, while seeing a German professor perform on an organ, he noticed a host of appearances moving about the keyboard. Veritable Lilliputian sprites, fairies and gnomes astonishingly minute in size, yet as perfect in form and features as any of the larger people in the room. He described them as being divided into sexes and clothed in a most fantastic manner. In form, appearance, and movement, they were in perfect accord with the theme quote in the quick measures how madly they danced waving their plumed hats and fans in very ecstasy and darting to and fro in inconceivable rapidity with feet beating time in rain-like patter of a chord quick as a flash when the music changed to the solemn cadence of a march for the dead the airy things vanished and in their place came black-robed gnomes dressed like cowled monks Sour-faced Puritans or mutes in the black garb of a funeral procession. Strangest of all, on every tiny face was expressed the sentiment of the music, so that I could instantly understand the thought and feeling that was intended to be conveyed. In a wild burst of sounding grief came a rush of mothers, tear-eyed and with disheveled hair beating their breasts and wailing impious lamentations over their dead loved ones, These would be followed by plumed knights with shield and spear, and host of fiery troops, mounted or foot, red-handed with the fiery strife of bloody battle, as the clang of martial music came leaping from the keyboard, and ever, as each change brought its new set of sprites, the old ones would vanish into the air as suddenly as they had come. Whenever a discord was struck, the tiny sprite that appeared was some misshapen creature with limbs and dress awry, usually a humpbacked dwarf whose voice was guttural and rasping, and his every movement ungainly and disagreeable. He then describes how, in his riper age, he saw such fairy-like beings coming from the lips of persons talking, and which seemed in every action the very counterpart of the feeling conveyed in the uttered speech. If the words were inspired by good sentiments, these figures were transcendentally beautiful. Bad sentiments produced horrid-looking creatures. Hate was expressed by hissing snakes and dark, fiery devils. Treacherous words produced figures beautiful in front and disgusting and horrid behind, while love produced forms silvery, white, and full of beauty and harmony. Quote, On one never-to-be-forgotten occasion I was a pained witness to a scene of living faithfulness on one side and a double-faced treacherous duplicity on the other. A fair young girl and her departing lover had met to exchange greetings ere he went on a distant journey. Each word of hers gave forth beautiful radiant fairies, but while the front half of each that was turned to the girl was equally fair to look upon, and smiled with all the radiant seeming of undying affection, the rear half of each was black and devilish, with fiery snakes and red-forked tongues protruding from their cruel lips as gleams of wicked cunning danced in sneaking, sidelong glances from the corners of the half-closed eyes. These dark backgrounds of the little figures were horrible to look at, ever shifting, dodging, and seeming to shut up within themselves as they sought to keep only bright and honest toward the trusting girl and hold the black deception out of sight. And it was noticeable that while a halo of cloudless radiance surrounded the good outside seeming, a pall of thick vapor hung like a canopy of unbroken gloom above the other. It would be absurd, to suppose that these forms had any objective existence outside of the mind of the man who observed them. They were the creations of the involuntary action of his mind, and represented the various mental states which were produced in quick succession by the impressions his mind received, but they furnish a good illustration to the theory, that each form expresses a certain character, and that each mental state corresponds to a certain form in which it may find its expression. The above description coincides with what has been described by others and proves that thoughts and sentiments are something substantial residing in the imagination of man and which may affect his inner world for good or for evil, and that the necessity of controlling thoughts and desires is not a matter of little importance, but has a practical use. But those who reject such testimony and consider such forms as elusive may remember that not only such forms, but all forms, are only apparitions, and that they all represent invisible truths. Before the pure light of reason, all illusion will disappear in the end, and the truth appear, not hidden in forms, but in the sublime splendor of its purity before the wandering gaze of the spiritually awakened man. But although subjective forms are manifestations of life, they have no appropriate active will of their own. They are the creations of the thought of man acting upon the Akasha. They are only kept alive by the life power that radiates into them from the life center in man. They are like shadows, vanishing when the fountain of light from which they drink is exhausted. When the psychical action of man that gave them life ceases to act, or acts in another direction, they will disappear sooner or later. However, as the corpse of a man does not dissolve immediately as soon as the principle of life has departed, but decays slowly or rapidly according to their molecular density and cohesion, Likewise, the astral forms created by the desires of man may require a considerable time for their dissolution according to the amount of will-fire made active in them. They continue to exist as long as man infuses life and consciousness into them by his thought and his will, and if they have once gained a certain amount of power, they may still cling to him, although he may not desire their companionship. They depend on him for their life, and the struggle for existence forces them to remain with the source from which they draw their vitality. If they depart from that fountain, they die. They are therefore forced to remain and, like the phantom created by Frankenstein, they persecute their creators with their unwelcome presence. To rid oneself of such a presence, he who is persecuted should direct the full power of his aspirations and thoughts into another and higher direction, and thereby starve them to death. In this way the spiritual principle of every man becomes his special redeemer, who by the transformation of character saves him from the effects of his sin, and before whose pure light the illusions created by the lower attractions will melt like the snow under the influence of the sun. Elemental forms being the servants of their creator, in fact his own self, may be used by him for good or for evil purposes. Loves and hates may create subjective forms of beautiful or of horrid shapes, and, being infused with consciousness, obtain life, and may be sent on some errand for good or for evil. Through them the magician may blend his own life and consciousness with the person he desires to affect. A lock of hair, a piece of clothing, or some object that has been worn by the person he desires to affect may form a connecting link between himself and the latter. The same object may be attained if that person is put into possession of an article belonging to the magician, because wherever a portion of anything with which the magician was connected exists, there will a part of his own elements, exist, which will form a magnetic link between him and the person whom he wishes to affect. If he has developed his astral senses, distance will not prevent him to observe the person with which he is connected. If he can project his astral form at a distance, his form may be present with his victim, although the latter may not be able to see it. The astral image of a person may be projected consciously or unconsciously to a distance. If he intensely thinks of a certain place, his thought will be there, and consequently he will be there. For the thought of a man is the most important part of himself. Wherever a man's consciousness is, there is the man himself, no matter whether his physical body is there or not. The history of spiritualism and somnambulism furnishes abundant evidence that a person may be consciously and knowingly in one place while his physical body lies dormant in another. Franciscus Xavier was thus seen in two different places at one and the same time, likewise Apollonius of Tyana, and innumerable others mentioned in ancient and modern history. The elemental scent by a magician is an essential part of the magician himself and if the victim is vulnerable by being mediumistic, with, other words, by not having his own principles held together by the power of his reason and will, the latter may be injured by the former. But the former, too, if his astral form be materialized to a certain extent, even if not sufficiently to be visible to the eye, may be injured by physical force. And as the astral form re-enters the physical body, the latter will partake of the injuries inflicted Upon the former. The magician who, by the power of his will, has obtained control over the semi intelligent forces of nature can make use of these forces for the purposes of good or evil. The helpless medium through whom manifestations of occult power take place can neither cause nor control such manifestations. He cannot control the elementals but is controlled by them. The elements of his body serve as instruments through which these astral existences act, after the medium has surrendered his will and given up the supreme command over his soul. He sits passively and waits for what these elementals may be pleased to do. He unconsciously furnishes them with his life and power to think, and his thoughts and the thoughts of those that are present may become reflected in these astral forms or may enable them to manifest an intelligence of their own. A medium for spirit manifestations is merely an instrument, for the manifestation of invisible forces over which he has no control, and the more mediumistic a person is, the less he will be liable to exercise a will of his own. The best of such mediums have been very unjustly blamed for cheating. For a medium which would not cheat is as unthinkable as a mirror that would not reflect the objects before it. The thoughts of the person visiting a medium, and who are trying to find out his impostures, are taken up by the medium and reflected by him. It is therefore not the medium's person that cheats, but his visitors cheating themselves through his instrumentality. A mirror that would not reflect all the objects that are brought before it, would be a very unnatural and deceptive thing a medium who would only reflect such thoughts as he chose to reflect would be an impostor for being able to exercise his own will he would not be in that passive condition which constitutes his mediumship the adept in magic is not the slave of these forces but controls them by the power of his will he may consciously infuse life and consciousness and intelligence into them and make them act as he pleases. They obey his commands because they are a part of himself. The spiritualists do this unconsciously. They frequently sing at their seances to produce harmony, and they know that the more the conditions are harmonious, the better will be the manifestations. The reason for this is that the more harmony exists in a circle, the less will there be any exercise of an individual will, the less concentration of self, and the easier will it be for these influences to use the will and the vitality of the sitters. These animal astral existences belong to the kamarupa form of existence, and their forms are therefore too ethereal to act directly upon gross matter. They therefore need the assistance of an intermediary principle which is furnished by the second principle in man, the combination of soul and matter called Lingus This may be furnished by the astral elements of the living or by the astral remnants of those whose bodies are dead. The astral elements used by the elementals in spiritual seances for the purpose of producing physical phenomena are not only taken from the medium but from all present whose constitution is not strong, and who may therefore furnish such elements. In seances for materializations, they are also taken from the clothing of those present, and furnish material for the drapery of the spirits, and it has been observed that the clothing worn by people, who frequently attend to such seances, wears out sooner than usual. To bring fresh-spilled blood into such spiritual seances would probably increase the strength of the materializations very much, and a knowledge of such facts has given rise to the abominable practices of black magic, which are still going on in many parts of the world, although secretly and unknown to the police. This knowledge has also undoubtedly given rise to the sacrifice of animals in the performance of religious ceremonies, A certain executioner was unfortunately gifted with clairvoyance, and after having decapitated a person, he could see the spirits of dead people. Sometimes even his friends and relatives pounce upon the fresh-spilled blood of the criminal and feed on its emanation and aura. He became so disgusted that he had to resign his position. It is also a fact that, at a time when the blood-drinking mania in Europe was started by medical ignorance, many people who practiced it became insane, and others became demoralized by it. The astral remnant of man is without judgment and reason. It goes wherever his instincts may attract it, or wherever any unsatisfied craving may impel it to go. If you wish to be haunted by the ghost of a man, attract him by the power of love or hate, which you felt for the man, Leave some promise unfulfilled which you might have fulfilled, and instinctively the astral form of the deceased will be attracted to you to seek its fulfillment, drawn to you by its own undissatisfied desire. Such an astral form is not necessarily in any way consciously connected with the real spirit of that person, as will be clear to those who have studied the doctrines of the constitution of man it may be merely that combination of his lower principle or his astral corpse, which made up the animal man. But if the man was very brutish, having all or nearly all his consciousness concentrated into his animal aspects, such a remnant may constitute all or nearly all there ever existed of that person, except his higher reason, which may have fled even before his death. There are endless varieties of combinations of circumstances existing on the astral as well as on the physical plane. There is no pattern by which all cases can be explained alike. Their study belongs to the department of necromancy. It is not his fault if you do not perceive his presence and hear his voice. It is because your astral senses are asleep and unconscious. You may feel his presence, and it may cause a feeling of depression in your mind. He speaks to you but in a language that you have not yet learned to understand. In those elementary remnants remains that which constituted the lower nature of man, and if they are temporarily infused with life, they will manifest the lower characteristics of the deceased, such as have not been sufficiently refined to join his immortal spirit. If a music box is set to play a certain melody and made to start, it will produce that same melody and no other, although it has no consciousness of its own. The remnant of emotional and intellectual powers in the astral remnant of man will, if this remnant is made to speak, become manifest in the same kind of language which the man during his life used to speak. The fresh corpse of a person who has suddenly been killed may be galvanized into a semblance of life by the application of a galvanic battery. Likewise, the astral corpse of a person may be brought back into an artificial life by being infused with a part of the life principle of the medium. If that corpse is one of a very intellectual person, it may talk very intellectually, and if it was that of a fool, it will talk like a fool. The intellectual action resembles mechanical motion insofar that if it is once set into action, it will continue without any continual effort of the will, until it is exhausted or comes to a stop. We often see this in daily life. There are old and young people, frequently seen, who are in the habit of telling some favorite story, which they have already told many times, and which they repeat on every occasion. It may be noticed that when such A one begins to tell his story, it is of no use to tell him that one knows it already. He has to finish the story, in spite of himself. An orator or a preacher does not need to think and reason about each word he utters separately. When the stream of ideas once flows, it flows without any effort of the will. If ideas flow into the astral brain of a deceased person, infused with life by the medium, that brain will elaborate those ideas in the same way it was accustomed to do during life. We also reason while we dream. We draw logical conclusions during our sleep, but reason is absent. And although we dream, our logic seems to be reasonable. Nevertheless, we often see that it was foolish when we awake and our reason returns or becomes active again. The mental organism of man resembles a clockwork which, if it is once set into operation, will continue to run until its force is exhausted. But there is no clockwork which winds itself up without extraneous assistance, and there is no mental organism able to think without a power that causes it to begin the process of intellectuation. In a departed soul, the attraction of good and evil still continues to act, while the final separation of the higher and the lower takes place. It may follow the attraction of the higher principles in nature and be attracted to spirit, or it may again come into contact with matter through the instrumentality of mediumship. Take again, part in the whirling dance of life, although by vicarious organs. Follow once more the seduction of the senses, and lose entirely sight of the immortal self. It is therefore not merely dangerous to a person to hold intercourse with the spirits of the departed, but it is especially injurious to the latter, as long as the final separation of their lower principles from the higher ones has not yet taken place, Necromancy is a vile art, and so has therefore always been abhorred. It may disturb the blissful dreams of the sleeping soul, which aspires to a higher state of existence. It is like roughly attacking a saint, during his hours of meditation, and to force him to take an interest in affairs of the lower life, which can be of no use to him in his efforts to rise into a superior state. It is a step towards degradation, and as every impulse has a tendency to repeat itself, the most terrible consequences may follow after what seemed to be at first merely some innocent amusement. These astral remnants may be used by the black magician, and by the elemental forces in nature for the purpose of evil. If they are unconscious, they will only serve as the instruments of the latter, If they are conscious, they may enter into an alliance and cooperate with them. Such alliance, either consciously or unconsciously on the part of him who enters into such an unspiritual intercourse, may take place between an evil-disposed person and a very evil inhabitant of the astral plane, whose whole consciousness has been concentrated within his lower principles. We are convinced that many people who are in actual possession of powers to work black magic, work evil unconsciously. That is to say that if they hate a person, they are often unconscious of the effects which their hate produces upon the latter, and the mode in which it acts. The spiritual force created by their hate may enter the organism of the object of their hate, and cause some bodily sickness, and the person from whom the evil power proceeds may be entirely ignorant of the fact that it was his own hate which produced the sickness. Such black magicians merely furnish the elements of evil by which invisible powers act. The animal elements existing in the soul of man may, after having attained a certain degree of vitality, be projected by hate towards another person and enter his soul even unknown to him, from whom they originate. But they are still a part of the life principle of the person from whom they originated, and if they cannot take hold of the soul of him against whom they are directed, they return again to the source from which they originated, and may kill him from whom they emanated. It is therefore said that if the will of the black magician is not strong enough to effect his evil purpose, the force will return and kill the magician. This is undoubtedly true, and the grossest illustration of it is if a person by a fit of rage or jealousy is induced to kill himself. It is the reaction following an unfulfilled desire which induces the rash act. The act is merely a result of his previous mental state. The surest protection against all the practices of black magic, whether they are caused consciously or unconsciously, is to acquire strength of character. In other words, faith in the divine principle within one's own soul. As man becomes ennobled, the lower elements in his constitution are thrown off and replaced by higher ones, and in a similar manner a transformation may take place in the opposite way if he degrades himself by his thoughts and acts. Sensual man attracts from the akasha those elements that his sensuality requires, for gross pleasures, can only be felt by gross matter. A man with brutal instincts growing and increasing may degrade himself into a brute in character, if not in external form. But as the form is only an expression of character, even that form may again approach an animal in resemblance. The proof of this assertion is seen every day, for we meet every day in the streets brutish men whose animal instincts are only too well expressed in their external forms. We meet with human snakes, hogs, wolves, and those upon whom alcohol has stamped its seal, and it does not need the instructions given in books of physiognomy to enable almost anybody to read the character of certain persons more or less correctly expressed in their exterior forms. In the physical plane, the inertia of matter is greater than in the astral plane, and consequently its changes are slow. Astral matter is more active, and may change its form more rapidly. The astral body of a man whose character resembles an animal may therefore appear to the seer, as an animal in its outward expression. Note Swedenborg, Heaven and Hell. The astral form of an evil person may appear in an animal shape if it is so filled with brutish instincts as to become identified in his imagination with the animal, which is the expression of such instincts. It may even enter the form of an animal and obsess it, and it sometimes happens that it enters such forms for its own protection against immediate decomposition and death. It would be useless to give anecdotes, illustrating instances in which such things took place, The principal object of the reader should be to learn to know the essential constitutions of man, by observing the conditions of his own being, and the law which regulates all forms of matter and functions. If he once understands the modes in which the law may act, it will be a matter of little importance to know in what particular cases it may have manifested itself in such modes. Accounts of phenomena, can never supply the place of the understanding of the law. Popular traditions speak of human beings having assumed the form of animals roaming about and injuring men and cattle. Modern culture is prone to pronounce impossible everything she cannot explain. But the existence of such forms is theoretically not possible, because a person may project his astral elements at a distance and make them appear in a material form, and that form is not necessarily human, because man is what he thinks, and his exterior shape may adapt itself to the true character by the power of his imagination. This was fun. Another chapter from a book that meant a lot to me and brings me back to my time in Vienna in 97, reading this book on the bus to and from the uh, brunheim Steinschule steineschule jeder Tag. I did buy the book, though, however, a couple of years before that at the Rosicrucian Park in San Jose, if I recall correctly, for a few dollars. And, um, yes, the creation of elementals and such thought forms and egregores is covered in my recent lecture, which was quite popular, so thanks for that. And you can check it out for just a couple bucks on hermeticmysteryschool.com. Thanks for all of your support. Many blessings.